This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360, the latest moves in the former president's attempt to avoid any criminal accountability for January 6th in two cases that could make any president immune for anything they do in office. Also tonight, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez on her calls for Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from the former president's appeal to stay on the Colorado ballot. And new reports tonight of loose bolts on the door plugs of Boeing 737 MAX 9s. That's after a terrifying incident in the skies that left a hole in the same model plane and very few answers how it happened. Good evening. Thanks for joining us. We begin tonight with new developments in the former president's push to make any criminal charges against him disappear. He'll be in Washington tomorrow in court by choice, we should add. As a federal appeals panel, here's oral arguments on his claim of presidential immunity in the January 6th case. Today, he filed a similar immunity claim on similar state charges in Georgia. Now, if they go his way, especially in the federal case, it could make him and any former president legally unaccountable for any crime they might commit while in office. It's the same notion another former president once drew scorn for embracing. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. By definition. Exactly. Former President Nixon said in 1977 is what the current former president is claiming now and what the courts never fully decided back then. Perhaps because Richard Nixon was never indicted, let alone on 91 felony counts. Perhaps also because at the time, lawmakers held him politically accountable, including members of his own party. By contrast, during the second Trump impeachment, most Republicans refused to. Quoting North Carolina Senator Tom Tillis at the time, quote, the ultimate accountability is through our criminal justice system. And if Republicans were reluctant back then to impose any political consequences on the former president, they're even more so now during his campaign to retake the White House. I want to play you something Mr. Trump has been saying lately and repeated over the weekend about those convicted and serving time for their crimes on January 6th. They ought to release the J6 hostages. They've suffered enough. They ought to release them. I call them hostages. Some people call them prisoners. I call them hostages. Release the J6 hostages, Joe. Release them, Joe. You can do it real easy, Joe. They're not hostages, and he knows that. He's certainly done this before, trying to turn convicted violent felons into martyrs. But now, far from condemning him, some Republicans are actually using the same term. I have concerns about the treatment of January 6 hostages. Uh, I have concerns. We have a role in Congress of oversight over our treatments of prisoners. That was Congresswoman Elise Stefanik, chair of the House Republican Conference, the fourth ranking Republican in Congress. And that's what political accountability looks like within that party. It's the kind of criminal accountability or lack of it that the former president is asking the courts to give him now. Joining us now, conservative lawyer and Atlantic Monthly contributor George Conway. George, when you hear the former president, first of all, using the term hostages to refer to people committed crimes on January 6th, what do you think? Oh, it's completely obscene. I mean, the notion that these people who tried to overthrow the government at his behest, to try to end constitutional democracy in America, and who are being prosecuted, who are indicted by federal grand juries, uh, for their crimes against the United States to say that they are hostages is just, I mean, definitionally absurd, but just morally obscene. And I, I just, the notion that, that people accept that and that, that he is not drummed out of public life for saying something like that, and that indeed people like Elise Stefanik um, parrot his lies is, is just a 
just one more condemnation, self-condemnation of the Republican Party. I, I just don't know how much lower they can go. As we mentioned, the, the former president's lawyers, they're going to argue tomorrow that his actions after the 2020 election were all covered by presidential immunity. How do you think this is going to play out? Uh, I don't think it's going to play out very well for the former president tomorrow. I think uh, one of the basic guidelines I always had in watching uh, arguments of any sort in court, and particularly appellate arguments, is the side that gets the most questions is probably the one going to get the, the short end of the stick in, a rule, in the ruling at the end. And I anticipate that most of the questions are going to be directed at, uh, the Trump, at Trump and his lawyers on how you can possibly justify uh, giving a president who is sworn to uphold the laws of the United States and the Constitution of the United States, how, how that person can be above the law and any, anything can be um, lawful just because the president says so, says so, like the clip that you played of President Nixon that, that he asserted. And that no one has ever bought that. It's completely inconsistent with our constitutional tradition. And, and there's just no way that a court is going to accept that. The former president is attending the oral arguments tomorrow. Do you think that's purely uh, for fundraising purposes and he knows that's where cameras will be and he'll make a statement uh, before and or after or both? Or is there a legal strategy at play here in, in terms of maybe some sort of impact on judges? No, I don't think there's a legal strategy in, in play. And, and that's certainly something I think he is too small minded to be able to think through, think that through. I think what he's doing is he's seeking maximum attention. He's a, he's a narcissist. He thinks somehow that his presence um, can, can persuade people generally. I think that he's, you know, I think he's going to, he wants to put on a show tomorrow. I think he wants to put on a show that he's somehow being politically persecuted and that he's being unfairly the victim of a witch hunt, which we've heard thousands of times. And I, you know, I just, you know, he probably will raise money off of it, but I don't think it's going to have any legal effect on how this, how this proceeding goes. Because he makes the argument, well, I'm, I'm, I have to go to court. I can't be on the campaign trail when in fact he actually doesn't have to be in court court tomorrow. The former president's attorneys also filed motions today in the, the election fraud case in Georgia, again, claiming the indictment should be barred under presidential immunity. If his claims of immunity are ultimately upheld on the federal level, what impact that would that have on a state court case like this one? Well, I think it would. I mean, I think the state court case would follow. Um, and I think that if he's if his presidential immunity claim is defeated in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, which I think it will be in a matter of days, I think that will shut down his immunity claim in the Georgia case. And I don't think, you know, I think the real question will be, will the Supreme Court bother to take either one of those cases? And I think it's quite possible we'll take uh, the, the D.C. Circuit case, but it's also quite possible uh, that they may not, knowing that the trial is, is upcoming and knowing that they can review any immunity claims that he loses this time around after uh, he's convicted and sentenced. If the federal appeals court or the U.S. Supreme Court agree with the former president's interpretation of presidential immunity, just long term, what implications of that decision, what, what does it have on the presidency long term? Well, I think it would have more um, than an impact on the presidency. I think it would have a, a devastating and dangerous impact on our constitutional tradition and on the rule of law. I mean, if you look at, if you talk to students, of, uh, scholars of authoritarianism, they will tell you that the, that authoritarian governance is the governance of criminals. It's the governance of criminal mobs. And, and, and an essential element of that is uh, immunity or impunity. 
and the ability to break the law and to make the law whatever the uh, leader wants it to be. And not only is this immunity, this criminal immunity for basically any action relating to his job that he seeks, um, not consistent with our constitutional traditions, it would be an essential element uh, for an authoritarian regime. So I, I don't think it, there's any chance it's going to be accepted. And indeed, even if even if, it, if some kind of criminal immunity were accepted by the courts, it certainly wouldn't cover uh, the conduct he engaged in here, which was basically antithetical to his duties as president of the United States. So, I mean, the, in the civil realm, which is the cases that he's relying on, the, the only immunity that a president gets is for uh, actions that occur within the outer perimeter of their official responsibility. Here, he was way yeah. outside the outer perimeter. He was actually undermining his duties. How long do you think it'll take for the court to rule? Uh, I think it will be a matter of days. I think they, the, the, the Court of Appeals obviously knows what the timetable is here, obviously knows the importance. And at the same time, you know, they set, uh, they set a highly expedited schedule to hear this case at, at all tomorrow. And I think they're going to act swiftly after that. I don't think there's any question how they're going to rule. I think they're going to rule quickly. And I think well, the, the, the parties of the United States and Donald Trump will be back preparing for this trial. And I think the trial is probably going to go off um, on a- in April, if not shortly soon thereafter. You wrote a piece for The Atlantic on the U.S. Supreme Court's recent announcement that they're going to review the Colorado Supreme Court's decision to hold the former president ineligible to serve uh, as president under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. I'm wondering what stood out to you about the former president's petition to the U.S. Supreme Court. Yeah, as I pointed out in The Atlantic piece, what was really odd about the petition was that it didn't point out particular errors um, and, and focus on specific errors in the decision of the, uh, the alleged errors in the decision of the Colorado Supreme Court. I mean, what you're supposed to do when you draft one of these documents is you're supposed to, a petition for writ of certiorari to the Supreme Court asking them to take the case, what you're supposed to do is to set forth the questions one by one on the inside cover uh, that, uh, that you say, that the questions of law that you say the lower court got wrong. And here they just simply put one question basically, was Donald Trump improperly disqualified? And that's not the normal way you do things. And I think there are a couple of reasons why. And I think the most important reason is that when you ask that question, people say, oh, yeah, he should be allowed on the ballot because they're not really familiar with the idea of the provision in the Constitution that bars insurrectionists from holding public office. But when you actually break it down to the legal issues and factual issues involved, um, who's subject to the, th- the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, is there some kind of necessity for congressional legislation to enforce it, and, and did Donald Trump engage in uh, insurrection for purposes of Section he loses when you actually break down the questions, the, the, the case into its sub-questions, the way lawyers and judges are supposed to do. Mm. George Conway, appreciate it. Thank you. As we noted a moment Thank ago, you. every time this has come up, the former president's appearance in court is not mandatory. He, he's alone is choosing to go. He alone is choosing to take himself off the campaign trail. Even though he said otherwise this weekend in a campaign email saying, quote, Twice in this final week, I will reportedly be forced off the campaign trail and into the courtrooms for phony witch hunts in both New York and Washington, D.C. Again, that's not true. As we said, he's choosing to go to D.C. tomorrow and New York later this week for another hearing into his real estate business. The reality is the courtroom is the campaign trail for him. Senior data reporter Harry Enton is here to show us why. So how has the former president's polling changed 
with these court cases. You know, if you go back 10 months ago, this was an actual campaign for the presidency on the Republican side, right? Yeah, Donald Trump was ahead. But Ron DeSantis was at least within 20 points. He was within striking distance. I could show you historical examples of the second place person coming back to win with DeSantis's polling 10 months ago. You look now, it's just not anywhere close. Donald Trump now has a clear majority of the vote, north of 60%. He's up over 50 points over Ron DeSantis. That is the largest lead ever for a non-incumbent at this point in the primary. And if you look at the polling more generally speaking, Republicans actually say that these indictments have made them more likely to vote for the president instead of less likely. And that is something that is backed up by the polling data that shows Trump's lead is expanding ever wider nationally. As we talked about with George, he's been fundraising off this too. He's absolutely been fundraising off of it. It's not just the polls where his numbers have gone up. What are his two best fundraising campaign days so far? One of them wasn't when he appeared in New York. Uh, in the court in New York. The other one was the day that his mugshot was taken. He raised millions of dollars each of those days. And more than that, his fundraising quarters in the second quarter and the third quarter of last year, he was raising $35 million, $45 million in that third quarter. In the first quarter, he raised less than $20 million. In fact, there was some real questions as to whether or not Ron DeSantis could be the fundraising juggernaut and outraise Donald Trump. At this particular point, though, what these indictments have done and what appearing in court has done more than anything else has choked off the oxygen from those other candidates and have supercharged, mm. put the Trump campaign on steroids. And he has so much money right now, he's blanketing the airwaves. And more than that, he's able to pay his legal bills as what well. What about the primary or beyond the primary? Yeah, you know, so we've been talking about the primary, right? But let's talk about beyond the primary. Among Republicans, this perhaps I think is one of the more interesting poll questions that, that I sort of found, right? It's not just that Republicans believe, say, it's more likely that I'm going to vote for him in the primary. They actually believe it makes him more electable in the general election as well. They say he's more likely to beat Joe Biden because of these charges, not less likely. And here's the thing, Anderson, I'm not sure they're necessarily wrong. Because if you look pre-indictment, the general election polls, Joe Biden had about a two-point lead nationally among registered voters. Today, Donald Trump has a two-point lead. Mm. So it's not just that Trump has seen his polling numbers gone up in the primary. They've gone up in the general election as well. Voters claim to say that they care about these charges, at least among the general electorate. But overall in the polls, it's just not showing. Harry Anton, thanks very much. Thank you. Coming up next, President Biden amplifying his attacks on the former president as a threat to democracy. The question, how is what's becoming the centerpiece of his campaign landing with voters? Also tonight, the upcoming Supreme Court case and whether Justice Clarence Thomas should recuse himself from the case and keeping the former president off the Colorado ballot. I'll talk with Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who says he should. And later, potentially troubling new revelations about the Boeing airliners, much like the one that lost a chunk of the fuselage at 16,000 feet. We'll be right back. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually, with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, 
which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. This weekend, the former president repeated his strange claim that the civil war could have been averted by negotiation. Speaking today at Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, President Biden called him out on civil war history and compared Trump supporters with former Confederates who embraced what became known as the lost cause. Once again, there's some in this country trying, trying to turn a loss into a lie, a lie which, if allowed to live, will once again bring terrible damage to this country. This time, the lie is about the 2020 election. Again today, as he did Friday, Mr. Biden made threats to uh, democracy, a central theme of his remarks. And again tonight, the question is, how is the case he's making being received? Joining us, two CNN political contributors, former South Carolina state lawmaker Bakari Sellers and former Trump campaign advisor David Irvin. So, Bakari, President Biden speaking to black voters in South Carolina today, once again hitting on this message that his predecessor is a threat to democracy, comparing his supporters to defeated Confederates, embracing uh, the lost cause. In your view, is that a strategy that will resonate with voters? <laughs> Well, actually, I think it will. And I think it's not just uh, the messaging about the lost cause or the Confederacy or the Civil War, but it's actually the act of meeting voters where they are. I, I hear my good friend David chuckling in the background, but let me just give you a point of personal privilege really quick and just teach for one moment. He was at Mother Emanuel AME Church, uh, where we had one of the most devastating massacres in the history of the United States. He was just a few hundred yards away from where the first slaves entered the country. He was in hallowed ground speaking hallowed words to an audience that could really uh, absorb what he was saying, and even more importantly, one he's going to need to win to the election. And so, yeah, I know people get caught up in, in what he may say, but it was about where he was, it was about the venue. And it was about the fact that he was meeting voters where they were. Today was a good day for the Biden campaign. It was one that they can build upon. David, was today a good day for the Biden campaign? Yeah, listen, I, I agree with Bakari in, ter in terms of the, the location and, and the messaging. If, 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 the president, if President Biden doesn't have African-Americans, uh, from young African-Americans to old African-Americans, and they're not a monolithic voting bloc, as Bakari will tell you, younger African-Americans skew more progressive, older African-Americans skew you know, uh, uh, more conservative, but he needs every African-American voter to turn out for him, not just to not vote for Trump, but to turn out in support of Biden, because if he doesn't, he's definitely going to lose. David, I mean, for his part, the former president was out over the weekend making these bizarre, ridiculous claims that the Civil War could have been negotiated. I mean, he said he can, you know, solve the war in Ukraine in a day. Uh, the, the DOJ and FBI have been weaponized against him. Uh, he's claiming he's calling convicted insurrectionists hostages. Do you think he risked playing to President Biden's hands with that kind of rhetoric? Yeah, look, I, I mean, Anderson, I, I've said this repeatedly and I'll continue to say it. I think the only one that could beat Donald Trump in 2024 is Donald Trump. And, you know, if he if he shifts and pivots his focus on to things that, uh, you know, President Biden should be talking about, the things that people are talking around their kitchen table, 
right? Economic issues, insurance, whether they can pay their mortgage and where they can get a mortgage, right? Those, those are things that people in America want to talk about and are concerned about. And I think that, you know, whether it's President Biden looking backwards or President Trump looking backwards, I don't, I don't think uh, most Americans want to, want, to, want to focus on that. They want to focus, you know, prospectively about what their futures look like. Bakari, to the point uh, that David made about black voters, Republican Senator, uh, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott released this video today saying that President Biden's numbers with all minority groups are dropping and that people of color are losing confidence in him. What are your concerns about the support he's receiving from black voters or the lack of it? So uh, I think my analysis is this, Anderson. This race is not just uh, Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. That's where people miss the mark. This race is Joe Biden versus Donald Trump versus the couch. And the couch actually is a very, very successful candidate in the United States of America. Literally runs no ads, but year after year, more and more people are choosing the couch. And so Joe Biden has to make sure that that voters want to come out and vote for him. Black voters are tired. They're tired in this country, particularly black women, from carrying the Democratic Party and not feeling the benefit of that, whether or not it's in their gas tanks or their pockets or when they send their children to school. And so what Joe Biden has to do is say, look, Our administration has done these things, whether or not it's Kentonji Brown Jackson or Kamala Harris or the the inequity gap in in terms of 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 wages in this country or unemployment in this country for black folk. We have done these things. And so he just has to get out and share the good message. And then he ended on a good note um, today. It was it was a gospel song where he talked about the fact that that uh, God wouldn't bring us this far to leave us. It was a message of hope. It was a message of faith. And that is what voters need to hear, particularly black voters that are the backbone of the Democratic Party. David, I mean, Biden continues to focus on, on the, you know, Trump's efforts to overturn 2020 election, saying today losers are taught to concede when they lose and he's a loser. I mean, how do you think the former president is, is taking that tonight? Do you think? It- well, I, th- I think it's probably he's probably taking it pretty well. No, of course, it's like rubbing salt in the wounds, Anderson. I'm sure he I'm sure he hates it. Uh, I'm sure Trump hates it. And that's why he, he you know, punches back with the weaponized DOJ and that when, when I'm president again, I'm coming after I'm going to indict, you know, I'm going to indict Joe, Joe Biden. And, and you know, and he, and he punches back. I, listen, I, I don't think it's uh, it's useful. I think it's again, I, I think that people want to hear in America. Americans want to hear how's my life going to be better if you're president? That, that's what they want to hear. They, they're past rhetoric. Bakari's right. The couch wins in a lot of time, both on Republican and Democratic tickets. And so people need to get off the couch, get involved, and, and candidates need to make them want to get off the couch and get involved with a message of, that's, you know, that, of, 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 you know, of optimism. <laughs> we can do better as a country in lots of ways. Let's hear about it. Bakari, when, when he was speaking about the recent school shooting in Perry, Iowa, the former president said it was horrible, but, quote, we have to get over it. That kind of language, I guess it may help him win the Republican nomination. How do you see it playing in the general election? I mean, it it turns away white college educated women, for example. It turns away those independent voters. I mean, hell, it it should just turn away people who have some level of conscience. Donald Trump doesn't do well when it comes to like sensible things that people should have, like basic empathy, like emotions. <laughs> he doesn't possess those those uh, character traits. I think there are a lot of people who have some affinity for a Donald Trump economy. We can argue those policies, but he just won't stay on that. He always wants to go off topic and talk about slavery or weaponize DOJ or the fact that in, in Perry, Iowa, for example, we just have to get over that. I think David would tell you that if they could keep him on message, he would have a better chance to be president of the United States. 
But if he has yeah. to show some type of emotion, I, I mean, I would argue the man's emotionally stunted, but I'm not a doctor. Bakari yeah, yeah. yeah, David, go ahead. I was just going to say what, what, one last thing to, to Bakari's point. I, people know this. Voters know this about Donald Trump. It's not a secret. They've seen the guy before. So, so you know, knowing all that, and he's still right. leading Biden, what does that say? Yeah. Bakari Sellers, David Urban, thank you. Coming up, we're going to be joined by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez to discuss why she and seven of her House colleagues are demanding Justice Clarence Thomas recuse himself from deciding whether the former president is eligible for Colorado's primary ballot. Also, breaking news on that Alaska Airlines flight that lost a section of the cabin mid-flight, a second airline says it has uncovered similar issues with the same model Boeing aircraft. Details on that ahead. You heard George Conway earlier discuss the Supreme Court's decision to review whether Colorado's high court can toss the former president from the state's primary ballot as an insurrectionist. Oral arguments are scheduled for one month from today. In advance, eight House Democrats have sent a letter to Justice Clarence Thomas saying he should recuse himself in large part because of the actions of his wife, Ginny, in connection to the January 6th rally and subsequent riot. Quoting from the letter, quote, not only did your wife attend the January 6th rally, but she was instrumental in planning it and bringing the insurrectionists to the Capitol. It is unthinkable that you could be impartial in deciding whether an event your wife personally organized qualifies as an insurrection that would prevent someone from holding the office of president. I'm joined now by one of the Democratic members of Congress who signed that letter, New York's Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you so much for being with us. Um, so why do you think he should, he should recuse himself? I mean, I think it, it's very clear. Clarence Thomas and rather his wife, Ginny, participated in the events of January 6th. And now what is likely going before the Supreme Court is a judgment as to whether an event that his wife participated in, that his wife has been investigated by in the January 6th committee in, qualifies as an insurrection. And Clarence Thomas's decision on that one way or another, and overall the court's decision on that, would directly implicate his wife. And so this is just one of the most classic textbook conflicts of interest. Uh, and it would frankly be a scandal if he did not recuse. Do you think he actually will? I mean, he, he did recuse himself in a, the case regarding John Eastman, mm -hmm. for never really explaining exactly why he recused yes, himself. Yes, and his wife... You know, one of the one of the documents that Donald Trump actually tried to prevent from from coming to the January 6th committee were documents that showed Ginny Thomas in communication with John Eastman. And so, you know, there is a precedent there. Clarence Thomas, as you mentioned, did not really elaborate as to why he recused himself, but he recused himself with in a case with respect to John Eastman. His wife had actively been involved in communication with him, pressing uh, John Eastman, pressing Mark Meadows, Donald Trump's chief of staff at the time, and also continues to maintain that the 2020 election was stolen despite a complete lack of evidence thereof. And so, you know, I think um, our hope is that Clarence Thomas has shown that he is willing to recuse himself from a case. This is one of the most direct implications uh, that he has with respect to you know, perhaps one of one of any of the cases that's come before the court. Do you worry that he might not just because you have written this letter? I mean, just you have called for his impeachment before. I mean, you have you have been very tough on, on Clarence Thomas. Well, we have called for um, for him to recuse himself in all cases related to January 6th. He has in the past. And frankly, this this truly is not even about partisan point scoring. This is about 
the this is about the integrity of the court and to not recuse uh, oneself from from a case where one is so where justice is so deeply involved would have larger ramifications not just for Clarence Thomas but for the Supreme Court. Do overall. you think it? Or do you worry at all that sets a, a bad precedent if a justice has to recuse himself based on something his wife is alleged to have been involved with? I think with? that if if a justice's spouse would be directly implicated by a ruling from the Supreme Court, that's well within the standard professional bounds of a conflict of interest. Um, and I, I don't think that it's a troubling precedent to set. In fact, I think the, the precedent has been set that if something so personal would affect a justice that they would recuse themselves from a ruling. Do you believe the former president is going to be put on trial in any of these trials before the election? Do you, do you believe that there will be some opportunity for him to be judged by a jury of his peers? You know, I think um, that's really up to the courts and, and to the court system. As we know, he has a lot of different legal matters up in the courts. Some of those um, potentially criminal or at, at particularly with his colleagues as well. Others are civil. We are going to have to see how the courts really you know, make their their way through yeah. all of this. But this is the most pressing question that we have. And especially when it comes to this argument of complete and total uh, immunity. Yeah. Can you see, can you foresee a circumstance in which the Supreme Court would say that the president is immune? If the Supreme Court does come to that conclusion, it would have profound and destabilizing impacts on the presidency and for the country. Not just for this former president, but for history. But for all, all presidents to come, you know, and, and to say that any president, as soon as you are elected, that you can commit any crime whatsoever related to anything personal or, or, or you know, related to whether it's interpersonal or larger, whether it's fraud, whether it's violence, whether it, whatever it may be to say that no matter what happens, you cannot be held accountable in a court of law is an extremely, extremely destabilizing uh, position and finding uh, for, for the entire country that would have deeply, deeply damaging ramifications. The move by Republicans on impeachment in the House, do you think it's inevitable they will move to impeach the president? You know, they they are certainly trying. What we're seeing, though, is that they can't even name what they would impeach the president for. We're seeing this. This case has come right before uh, the House Oversight Committee, over which I'm, I'm the vice chair to or rather vice ranking member to ranking member Raskin. And we have had countless closed door sessions, closed door depositions. We've had open door hearings about this. And the Republican Party cannot even name what the crime is that they are alleging the president or, frankly, anybody else that they're trying to investigate to have committed. And impeachment is one of the most serious procedures that we have in this country. And it has to tie directly to a crime or misdemeanor or some other direct action uh, that we find completely incompatible with the presidency. And they have not even been able to name it. What is it? What are they actually investigating the president for? And they don't have an answer because the president has not done anything impeachable that they've been able to prove. And so what they're using and what they're doing is taking impeachment and taking all of the most serious procedures that we have as a country. And they're learning to use it for political 
they're politically weaponizing it for an election purpose, for a political purpose. And in doing so, they are putting the people of this country, everyday Americans, absolutely at the bottom of the barrel and they're putting themselves first. Mm. It's a selfishness that that really endangers this country. It endangers our electoral process. It endangers our legal process. It's deeply cynical and it's done to reelect themselves and line their own pockets. Mm. Congresswoman, appreciate your time. Thank you. Of course, thank you. Still to come, breaking news on that section of a plane that blew off a Boeing aircraft flown by Alaska Airlines last week. The issue may now extend to a second airline as well. I'll be right back. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Breaking news to report three days after a Boeing 737 MAX 9 flown by Alaska Airlines lost a door plug mid-flight, leaving a refrigerator-sized hole in the cabin. United Airlines reports that it's found loose bolts on the door plugs of an undisclosed number of its own Boeing 737 MAX 9s. The FAA grounded about 171 of that model aircraft on Saturday. United says in a statement that inspections uncovered installation issues, including, quote, bolts that needed additional tightening. Now, remarkably, the National Transportation Safety Board announced today they had located the door plug that blew off from the Alaska Airlines plane. It landed. It was found in someone's backyard in Portland, Oregon. Investigators are currently examining a pressurization fail light that went off three times the previous month, including the day before the accident. It's unclear whether that's related to the accident. Earlier, I spoke to the NTSB chair, Jennifer uh, Hammondy, who's leading the investigation. Ms. Hammondy, United Airlines says that it's found loose door plug bolts on an undisclosed number of its Boeing 737 MAX 9 aircraft, and they've canceled more than 470 flights since since Saturday. I'm wondering what's your response to that, and what do you say to the flying public right now who may be worried? Yes, well, uh, we have received those reports from United. We've heard from Boeing about those reports as well. Uh, we are checking with Alaska to see what they're finding in their inspections. But right now, we're really focused on what happened in this event. Uh, as far as flying, uh, these these planes are grounded. Uh, and aviation is very safe. Uh, our The U.S. airspace is the safest in the world, but we need to keep it that way which means when events like this happen, it's our duty at the NTSB uh, to launch an investigation to determine what happened, why it happened, so that we prevent it from happening again. And at this point, I mean, have you been able to determine what caused this incident? It's too early. Uh, We've been on scene for a few days. We just found the door plug this morning, fortunately, Uh, We asked the community for their help to find that door plug, uh, and somebody found it. A teacher found it in his backyard. That's remarkable. And so we picked it up this morning, and uh, we are evaluating that right now. Now that you found the door plug, what is the door plug? What can that tell you? Quite a lot. It really was the missing piece in the investigation, Uh, We're able to look at all the components on this door plug, 
all the fittings, uh, all uh, any sort of um, uh, uh, structures that may remain, any sort of bolts or um, uh, washers that may, or nuts that may uh, reside uh, on the door surround structure, as well as the uh, door plug itself. It's going to help our metallurgists and our materials engineers determine how uh, this door uh, came off and was expelled from the aircraft. On the Alaska air flight, do you know why no one was sitting in the seats closest to the door plug? I mean, was that just a coincidence? Yeah, it, uh, it was a coincidence and quite frankly, a miracle. Uh, this uh, plane has 178 seats, 171 uh, were occupied. And just by happenstance, there was no one in 26A and 28B if there uh, had and there been, were other locations. Would they have been sucked out? Uh, it's possible, certainly, that there could have been some really catastrophic consequences to those individuals that were closest to the doorframe. How damaging is it to the investigation that or limiting that you don't have a cockpit voice recorder? I understand the information was overridden after just two hours. I, I didn't realize it gets overridden so quickly. Yeah, it's really disappointing. The NTSB has been urging the FAA uh, to extend the CVR, at the cockpit voice recorder uh, recording hours from two hours to 25 hours. Why is it overridden so quickly? I mean, that seems crazy. That's the, that's the federal regulation, which is what we have been urging for years for FAA to change. Here's what I'll say. They just put out a notice of proposed rulemaking to extend it for 20 to 25 hours, but only for newly manufactured airplanes. There are hundreds of airplanes out there uh, that will last 30, 40, 50 years. It is ridiculous to have some for two hours and others for 25 hours. The 25 hour rule should apply to all airplanes, retrofit and new. Uh, I spoke directly to the FAA administrator and said we were going to raise this uh, in this investigation because we're really disappointed. We are very disappointed. There were significant communications issues between what was going on in the cockpit and the flight attendants in the cabin. The flight attendants had no idea what was happening at the, in the cockpit at the time. And there's a lot of chaos uh, in such an event. And we need to have all that information, not just for investigation, but to, to make sure we're getting to the right answers and recommending the right safety change. Yeah, I mean, this, it seems like this is potentially crucial evidence in all of these cases. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Jennifer Hamandi, I appreciate your time tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, Anderson. Next, the new action taken today against Christian Ziegler, who was suspended last month as the chair of Florida's Republican Party, as he faces a sex scandal and accusations of breaking the state's video voyeurism laws. The Republican Party of Florida has ousted its chairman, Christian Ziegler, as he faces a sex scandal that has shattered the public reputation of both he and his wife, who co-founded the conservative group Moms for Liberty. Last week, it was revealed that Sarasota police are looking at whether Mr. Ziegler broke Florida's video voyeurism laws when he secretly recorded a sexual encounter with a woman accusing him of rape. 
Ziegler claims the sex was consensual, and according to a search warrant affidavit, he showed detectives a video of the October sexual encounter. Authorities say that the woman had a previous three-way sexual encounter with Ziegler and his wife, Bridget. Christian Ziegler, who has not been criminally charged, says he's done nothing wrong. His wife has not been accused of a crime. More now from CNN's Carlos Suarez, who attended today's meeting in Tallahassee. So, Carlos, what happened today and what's been the reaction from Florida Republicans? Anderson, Christian Ziegler's fate with the Florida Republican Party has been sealed for some time now. And in the end, the vote wasn't even close. We're talking about 199 to three to remove him as chair of the state party. For weeks now, top officials across the state of Florida, from Governor Ron DeSantis to Senator Marco Rubio and Rick Scott and Congressman Matt Gates, who was in town for the meeting here in Tallahassee, wanted to see Ziegler step aside since the details of the sex scandal broke back in early October. The allegations that Ziegler sexually assaulted a woman that he'd had a previous consensual sexual encounter with, along with his wife, Bridget Ziegler, the co-founder of the Moms for Liberty group. Now, Anderson, it is important to note here that Christian Ziegler has not been criminally charged, and he said that the sex with the woman was consensual. Now, party officials told me after the vote that they really just want to move past this sex scandal. They admit that some of their fundraising efforts have taken a bit of a hit, but that because we are in a 2024 presidential election cycle and we've got the Florida legislative session, which gets underway tomorrow, they are ready to move beyond Christian Ziegler. And what about his wife, Bridget uh, Ziegler, as we said in the intro, admitted to this three-way with her husband and, and the same woman. The Sarasota County School Board passed a resolution, I know, last month officially calling on her to resign. Has she done that? Anderson, she has not, and she's given no indication that she plans on stepping aside anytime soon. In fact, I asked some of the very same Republican Party officials uh, today whether they believe that Bridget Ziegler should give up her school board seat, considering the allegations against her husband and the couple's behavior. And just about every single party official I spoke to said they didn't want to touch the subject. In fact, the only person in the state of Florida that could remove Bridget Ziegler from her school board seat is Governor Ron DeSantis. And Anderson, so far, he has given no indication that she should step aside. Carlos Suarez, thanks very much. Next, the latest on an explosion and fire at a hotel in downtown Fort Worth, Texas. We'll be right back. We have more breaking news. An explosion and fire at a hotel in Fort Worth, Texas. 26 rooms were occupied when it happened. The force of the blast causing part of the building to crash into the street. Local authorities say at least 21 people were injured, with one of those in critical condition. No uh, reports of fatalities at the scene. Investigators suspect the explosion was caused by a gas leak. Federal authorities are also looking into it with ATF agents on site. Now that said, a federal law enforcement source tells CNN there is currently no indication the incident is criminal in nature. That's it for us. The news continues. I'll see you tomorrow. The Source with Caitlin Collins starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.